You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me is my sometimes co-host, Paul Doroshenko. I don't know why you say sometimes co-host. You should just say co-host, and then when I'm not here, you should say... Paul's away this week, folks. Exactly. He has better things to do than come on the podcast. No, it's not that I have better things to do. It's that sometimes you have, you know, exciting guests with a different perspective. I know, but there's lots of podcasts that have two hosts, and both hosts will interview the guests. For example, I'm going to be appearing on an upcoming episode of the Fear of Science podcast, which has two hosts. That's true, and uh, and that's fine, but really, I mean, maybe they have two different perspectives. You and I generally have a lot of the same perspective on a lot of things, and so when we argue on this podcast, it's usually nitpickery. Yes, but apparently some people out there are entertained by our nitpickery. Well, and some people don't like it when we argue. Yeah. My dad doesn't yeah. like it when we argue on the podcast. There like, was someone else who said that, too. Like, I don't like it when you argue. It feels like the parents are fighting. You know, <laughs> So we try not to we try not to argue in front of staff in the office that's for sure in front of yeah. our colleagues yeah we generally don't argue so okay well moving <coughs> on from our personal nitpickery arguments to the more exciting world of driving law because last week we did the mailbag of twitter questions we didn't get to talk about anything exciting and there's been a lot there's been a lot of exciting stuff there's been like a few florida cases too that we're not even going to get a chance to talk about sadly no but um the most, I think, significant driving law story that's happened in the last two weeks and also the most tragic involves the death of a taxi driver in a motor vehicle accident in Vancouver um, with a car to go driven by somebody who was alleged to have been fleeing from a roadblock. Yeah, the the news story was on Global. They interviewed Grant Gokitrow, who's a friend of your podcast, who's also now apparently um, was on CKNW this week. Yeah. Um, And um, yeah, so it's come out that he came up to a roadblock and apparently blew through the roadblock, like was directed maybe to stop and then took off. And then there's concern now about whether or not the police took off after him and that that started a chase. Yes, and there's been some footage that Global managed to obtain of the um, the vehicle uh, through some, I guess, surveillance cameras at businesses on the route that the vehicle took from where the roadblock was to where the crash ultimately took place. And it's booking it. Yeah, I mean, you, I know, you think- and I took speed <laughs> estimation, police speed estimation training. I yeah. mean, it's not a... It's not a it's, it's sad, really. We, the car was yeah. going like, I mean, it, booking it. Yeah, we took That's speed funny, estimation but he, he training. He killed somebody. Yeah, like he okay, was fair. he was going fair. He was going. It, I would say conservatively a hundred kilometers an hour. And I it's mean, horrible. We took speed estimation training, and I watched that video maybe four or five times, and I couldn't put an estimate on it. I mean, it's like those times in traffic court where the officers say, "Look, I didn't make an estimation. All I knew it was, was it was really fast." Yeah. As I was looking at it, you could see, you could gain some perspective to say that it wasn't an issue of the uh, of the camera recording no. on the basis of the other vehicles. And you could see the speed it was traveling. And I would, I would say that it was at least 100 kilometers an hour, maybe 120, maybe 100, 
Maybe, I, yeah, 100 to 120, I, I would say. I would put it in excess of 100, because if you look relative to it, how slow the other vehicles are going. And if they're going <laughs> 50, which they're probably not, they're probably going 60, because it's Vancouver, um, it's more than double their speed. Yeah. On city streets. Yeah. So, incredibly dangerous driving. Um, timely, in the sense that the... Chung case, which we've talked about previously on the podcast, the BC Court of Appeal decision that found that speed alone, some speeds inherently by their very nature constitute dangerous driving, timely, because that case is being heard by the Supreme Court of Canada this week. Is it this week? This okay, week. I didn't so know it was coming up. It's perhaps the wrong time for all of this information to be coming forward. Well, I mean, this particular case with the car to go on the death of the taxi driver uh you know i prefer it not just to be speed as dangerous driving but when i think about it logically there are circumstances in a city street where i look at the car to go here and it's certainly an easy argument for people to make that it's dangerous operation of a motor vehicle to drive a car a car to go at 100 120 kilometers an hour on a city street that's designed for 50 kilometers an hour and yep. the fact of the accident may, you know, makes out a clear example of that. Well, we don't even know, though, at this point, what speed either vehicle was going at the point of impact or how they impacted one another. No, so I mean, the taxi might have been running a red light. Yeah, I mean, you can't say from seeing him traveling at that speed on that camera that he was necessarily going at the same speed or might have been going 50, 60 kilometers an hour through the intersection and might have been going through on a green light. You know, you, we just don't, I don't, that information's not out there now. No, but it'll come you out. Could, you could look at that speed though on the video and you, it, you, you, you might not find it too difficult as a prosecutor to persuade a judge that at that point it was dangerous operation of a motor vehicle. Yes. Um, and if I were a judge, I would have a hard time not convicting on the basis of that video. Even though I don't I don't necessarily accept that speed alone can constitute dangerous driving. No, I mean, I've looked at the video, yeah. Anyway, we uh, talked about uh, selling one of our smart cars on Twitter. We sold one of our smart cars to, we have an office smart car. Um, <clears throat> and people were talking about how uh, smart cars, they, they wouldn't want to have one because they were concerned about the safety. And this is a Twitter discussion that I had. And the smart car actually, you know, you could see the passenger compartment was still intact. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it was the smart car. It appeared to T-bone the taxi in the photographs. Smart cars have those strong cages. Car to go, of course, is going to shut down here. Yes. Um, this <coughs> case also raised really interesting questions sort of publicly about whether it would be appropriate for... Um, car share companies to require drivers to prove their sobriety through some mechanism um, before allowing people behind the wheel. And I mean, I'm in support of that. I think, I think from, first of all, from a public safety perspective, you have obviously a good, uh, it's a good action. And it's, it's not an unconstitutional search or, or an obligation because you're choosing to sign up for this private service and you're choosing to give them your business and you don't have to. Um, and I also think from a business perspective for these companies, it's a great move. 
the cost of purchasing an ignition interlock device and installing it in a fleet of thousands of vehicles across North America would be incredibly small compared to the savings at not losing these vehicles for being impounded due to impaired drivers or crashed due to impaired drivers and therefore taken out of the fleet. Well, there's an interest. I mean, there's a bunch of interesting things to that. First of all, how are you going to deal? If you're going to use interlocks, then you have mouthpieces. How are you going to deal with mouthpieces, and and how is it going to be sanitary from person to person? Um, secondly, there's a huge portion of the day where there's very few, very few impaired driving cases. Period. I mean, it, from from eight in the morning, I mean, yes, there's always the newsworthy cases of the people who are blowing a fail at seven in the morning, but pretty much like it starts at about nine or 10 p.m. Uh, are the bad hours from nine or 10 p.m. till about three in the morning are the most dangerous times to be on the road for that. Yeah, I think they studied um, it and found it was like nine at night to 4 a.m. Yeah. Um, so really, you'd only need it to be operating in that time period. Um, so you've got a couple of things to deal with there. One of the things that we noted um, when car to go showed up is that uh, uh, quite a few people were getting some sort of drinking driving um, punishment driving a car to go. And mm -hmm. uh, the police have told us many times that, um, you know, they can pull over a car to go at night and it's a 50-50 chance that the person's going to blow a fail. And, and I think one of the things is that people think that they are anonymous somehow when they get in the car to go and they can't get a taxi in Vancouver. Yeah, you can't get a taxi. You don't have your car or your keys because you've tried to plan responsibly. You wait around for an hour or two looking for a taxi. Now you've started to sober up a bit and you think, well, I'm fine now. I can drive. Well, I've gone through all of that and walked back to the office and tested myself on a on a breathalyzer and then taken a car to go home. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, I knew I was fine after <laughs> testing myself, <laughs> but everybody yourself. else... Uh, you know, I, I think that you're making my case out here. Well, no, and I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. Um, of course, car to go, as I said, is shutting down in February and then is this going to be Evo and we'll see whether or not their prices go up and Isn't whether they're also they're... Moto and, uh, that other one, Zipcar. Yeah. Those are for like longer period rentals. Right. Um, where car to go was really short term rentals. Um, we've seen a number of spectacular accidents with car to go and that's just the uh, ones that we know about uh, yeah. and we know about a and couple tons of tons being impounded well there's been a few that we've known about that were we knew about through work yeah. um but the um there's quite a few accidents and i think that was a significant problem was basically people driving the shit out of those cars and well, often drunk and and they'd impound the car and they often people wouldn't even hire us to deal with their irp uh, because they're paying for 21 days of the rental car at a bare minimum. Yeah, 10 or 15 cents a minute. Well, uh, the daily rate of $50 a day or $100 a day or whatever. Yeah. the um, I do have an answer to the mouthpiece problem. It's very simple. Uh, everybody is who signs up for the service, along with your all your membership stuff that you get in the mail, you get a little package of five or ten mouthpieces. You can order more. And there's also in the glove box or in the center console a little supply of them they refresh them in the same way that the cars get filled up with gas they refresh the mouthpieces they're all individually wrapped you know that i know but i think there's a better way i think there's a better way i mean i can tell you we could i could probably cut the deaths by drunk driving by 50 percent in north america if they 
if uh, like the government if the government wants to phone me and I'll explain <laughs> it, I should patent it. I guess. I mean, I'm 20 years doing this. I have some pretty good ideas about things that they could do. The other thing, though, that I think is concerning for me with these cardigos and the fact that currently cardigo or any car sharing currently with these companies other than when you get your contract with them and you sign the contract and say i'm not going to drive with any alcohol in my system a contract that nobody reads because you're usually signing up online and clicking yes i agree there's no enforcement of that. And I really wonder whether these companies could be breached on their insurance or could be um, could be denied insurance by not exercising reasonable care in entrusting the vehicles to these people by having having the entire determination of their sobriety limited to a contract that they sign at some earlier point in time, sometimes even years earlier. Well, that's my thing that I was going to say is that it's easy to incorporate some other technology such as open that app after 10 o'clock and there's a big red warning on the app that says look if you drink and drive in this car you're going to be on the hook for this 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 and this uh, that's was something that car to go and Evo could certainly do now the other thing they could do is right now to open your car to go and to get it started you have to punch in your code and then you have to punch in the code from the car um, open the car, let you punch in those codes, but don't let the car drive away until you do something else on your phone, like mm -hmm. some small physical dexterity test where you've got, you know, six buttons on your phone that you've got to press uh, in a sequence as they light up. Uh, you know, those companies could have invested and could still invest in that sort of technology and have it function from 9 o'clock until 5 a.m. That technology exists. They could probably just adopt existing technology. There's like, if you go and Google, am I sober, or search it on the App Store, you'll find tons of apps designed to assess your sobriety. And you spend five minutes on it, setting your baseline when you're sober, and then, you know, play with it when you're drunk to see how bad you are. They're not actually even different. I did some experimentation with a toxicologist um, he was calculating my alcohol elimination rate this was a long time ago when I could drink. Um, and so he, he did baselines on me where he had me play some games on his computer. I was like, okay, this is fun. And then had me redo it after I reached certain like blood alcohol levels to test where my, my functioning was at various stages of impairment. It was very interesting. I was actually better after well, I had been Well, there's the problem. That's the problem. <laughs> I um, get two in my head. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that's the problem. So some people would be better. And the other problem is that um, people would say, well, I passed their app. But you know. this is about protecting the company well, I know. I know. But they, the company could also, you know, they could say, I passed your app and therefore I can't deny any liability or whatever. I mean, the point is you would have to write it into the contract and say, look, I, we are not testing to see whether or not you are sober enough to operate a motor vehicle and drive. We're trying to lock you out if you are grossly intoxicated. Yeah. Uh, because there will be people who, you know, if you're cold and get in the car, you might have trouble using that app. Oh, um, yeah. If you're it might take exhausted you a while. after a long day of trial. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> or if you're drunk. That's me. Yeah. After <laughs> a long day of trial. Yeah. The, I was uh, I was leaving a, a courthouse after a long day of trial very recently. I won't say where or when to impugn anyone, but as I was walking out, the sheriff said to me, good work today, counsel. 
it was kind of funny because I'd basically just been sitting through Crowns Direct all day. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't been doing anything. And uh, he said, all right, time for you to go home and get drunk. And I laughed and I said, oh, I don't, I don't drink. And he says, all right, bong rips then. Good. <laughs> I was like, yeah, bong rips. Yeah, you can encourage people to do I'm that do now. That. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was taking it back at that. I was like, yeah, I can do bong rips. Yeah, back, <laughs> and admit it. Back in the day, you couldn't admit it or do it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't do it for 20, over 20 years because I didn't want to be violating the law. <laughs> I'm not I'm not doing it now. I'm now too old. Now it's bong rips yeah. for you, Paul. Yeah. Your face is getting red, Kyla. <laughs> it was funny. Did you, were you doing bong, was this yesterday? You were doing bong rips? Or I was, was this not today? doing bong rips yesterday. I hope not. No. Um, anyway, that's the, that's the thing that's happened with the car to go and car sharing companies. I, I think there's a lot to be explored there. I, I, I'm just. Legislators. I, I think that every new car should have something that checks you out after, after 10 p.m. Not hard to do. And I think we should be retrofitting other cars. And I think uh, any business vehicle uh, would be first, uh, basically any truck. And you should get a discount on your insurance if you install something like that. Yep, absolutely. Incentivize you to do it. Because if it's going to lock you out because you can't pass it because you're too tired, you're probably too tired to be driving anyway. Well, you don't even have to make it so it locks people out. You can just make it so the hazard lights turn on and stay on. And you can drive your car, but your hazard lights are on. That way, if you're up on a mountain or something and you're freezing and you're drunk, you can get in and still start your car. Yeah. Um, your and hazard lights may be on. You're going to get arrested. You're going to get pulled over. Yeah. The police are going to go, you're driving with your hazards on. Go stop to check sobriety. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's a way to do it too. You're also notifying the world that you're a hazard. Mm-hmm. So if you can't punch a code onto some keypad that's in your car, after you've established a baseline when you're there at ICBC one day, uh, your hazard lights come on. And your idea is brilliant, Paul, because it preserves our business. <laughs> well, Not to be cynical, but... but uh, well, we, I mean, th- we have lots of other business other than that. We do tra- traffic tickets. We, we so do busy. all sorts of different things. So we're I, ridiculously I busy. I'm telling you, we're... <laughs> it actually hurts how busy we are right now, but that's okay. You want something done right, ask a busy person mm-hmm. who's zeroed in on it like a laser. Yep. Got to get it done. Got to move on. Yeah. Um, speaking of moving on, <laughs> let's move on to our next topic. Oh, you're cringing at my transition there. No, I'm not. I'm just, I'm so tired. I got to close my eyes for a minute. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, so today, reasons were published in a BC Supreme Court judgment about, you guessed it, yet again. Again, a conviction of somebody in a distracted driving case for just charging the phone in the cup holder. Oh, so you wrote a new version of the electronic device law and put it on your blog and it's getting all sorts of uh, feedback and hits and radio stations and newspapers and... Kyla, television want to come and talk to you because you wrote better legislation than the government wrote. KylaLee.ca, check it out. It's on my blog. It is literally just how I would have written the electronic device provisions in a way that you read them. They make perfect sense. And I know everybody... They're still precise. They're, they're still precise. They still prohibit almost everything that's currently prohibited, although I made a few accommodations for things that I should think should be allowed. Well, it's uh, it's precise. It's, it's written. Uh, it could just really be 
cut and paste it into the Motor Vehicle Act because it's using all the same definitions and everything is the Motor Vehicle Act. It, uh -huh. it applies all of the standard structure of the Motor Vehicle Act. Stole some of their their exceptions by regulation provisions. I just copied those. Those are fine. And you wrote your own. You wrote your own but version of the own. electronic device provisions. Yeah. And you put it out there in the world and told the government that they can use it. Take it. Please take it. It's yours for free. My gift to you. Wouldn't that be lovely if they used it? Unfortunately, I, it now would be we're, cool. we're, we're doing, yeah, <laughs> but think about it now. You're taking away. And then I'd away. be like in court, I'd be arguing. I'd be like, I wrote this law. Like, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'd be taking away like 10% of your business. You'd become like care. the famous cell phone, uh, cell phone ticket lady. I don't care. Hey, cell phone ticket lady. I got a oh. ticket with a cup holder. That's not how it happens. It's usually very nice people. Isn't that how the clients no. speak when they call them? No, they're always like, I, I can't wish believe this. I got a cup holder ticket. Anyway, a guy convicted in traffic court for having his phone charging in a cup holder. Now, the reason this went to BC Supreme Court and actually resulted in a judge giving reasons was that the officer had testified that he, through his rear view mirror of his police vehicle... Oh my gosh. Was able to see into the vehicle behind him and saw this person's head, you know, bobbing up and down the, I'm looking down at my phone nod, which, yeah. you know, okay, maybe. But also that he could see the guy's cell phone in his hands, in his rear view mirror. No way. Yeah. So the Crown's position was... Um, but and he was convicted. And he was convicted. And he uh, testified. I want to know who the JJP was. He testified. Officer walks up to his window to pull him over sees the phone charging in the cup holder mm -hmm. and the guy testifies and says it was there the whole time. I wasn't touching my phone. Yeah. Um, and the JJP says, well, based on his own testimony, he's provided a sufficient basis for his conviction because his phone was charging. Therefore he was using it. That's what Jarhaney no says. No way. That's not what Jarhaney says. So there's this erroneous legal conclusion. And the judge, it's Justice Silverman. Oh. Um, who smart, smart, lovely, like decent, just, just so great to appear nice, in front of. Nice, regular guy. <laughs> I just, like, he always just makes sure that everybody in the courtroom feels so comfortable. You, you walk in, he's like, yeah, yeah, everybody just sit down. I want to get rid of this really quickly here. Let's, let's deal with this. Yeah, let's, okay, all right, good. Nice to see you all. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. I just feel comfortable. It's oh. like, I'm pretty sure, like, if I said, I don't want to wear my robes today, he'd be like, that's okay. I don't I don't want you to wear them either. No. You can wear what you want. You've got to be comfortable, mostly. <laughs> I should try that one time when I'm in front of him because I hate the robes. Um, anyway, so he says, look, like, you, you, first of all, that conclusion is a legal error because Drahaney clearly says that just charging without an associated act of touching or using is not use. You're allowed to have your phone in your car because you're charging. allowed to have it there to phone 911. And, and you're allowed to it's a charging. charger. It's yeah. a charger. It's a charger. Charger. And <laughs> so, so then... He says, but the second thing is, like, it's not clear from the JJ's reasons whether the conviction is based on his acceptance of the officer's evidence or this erroneous legal conclusion, because he makes these comments. And unfortunately, making these comments, he created this ambiguity in his own judgment about why he was convicting the guy. And I can't uphold it. And the last last line of the of the decision is hilarious because he's... It's, you know how sometimes they have little excerpts from the exchange between the judge and counsel? Yes. He says to Crown, I could sense your heart was not in this one. <laughs> I just love that. Because <laughs> how could your heart really be in that one? Yeah. Because the law is just so clear. Yeah. 
And I, I am baffled. But they didn't concede it. No. Hence why her heart wasn't in it. Hmm. Now I want to know who it is, but you don't have to give me names. I'll tell you off the podcast. Um, but I'm just baffled that still, after there have been now four cases from the BC Supreme Court saying Jarhaney does not say you have to be just charging it or just having it loose. It's charging and an associated act that still traffic court JJPs are like, oh, no, 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 it doesn't say that. Like, how much clearer do they have to make it? I don't know. I, I, yeah. Which is Uh, why the government should use my legislation. (laughs) Your legislation's great. Because it says. I know. You just read it and it all makes sense. You understand it, but it also covers all the exceptions and also covers all the things that you're not supposed to do. The best part is all the people on Twitter who are responding saying, you didn't, you didn't cover this. And then I just write them back with the section number. Like, yes, I did. You didn't read what I wrote. Yeah. You got to keep reading. So it's like, you didn't, you didn't cover emergency vehicles. Yeah, I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> you didn't say it could be loose in the couple. It literally says that. Yeah. Well, uh, you also refer to regulations that are going to implement certain aspects of it too. So I yeah. mean, it's not like I mean, everything I'm is covered in there. Which types of two-way radios installed in commercial vehicles constitute exceptions to electronic devices? Exactly. That's for government to do. Anyway, you did a great job with it. Thank you. Um, you should uh, send it to Cashid. He'd probably look at it and go, "Man, why didn't we do it this way?" I should send it to Mike Farnworth. Well, you should send it to both, but I mean, they're the two who had the sparring match over it when the when the original version of the legislation was introduced by Kashid. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who had the discussion about it in committee. Yep. Yep. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, we'll see what happens. Probably nothing. Probably nothing. But, you know, the government will sit at some point again and uh, maybe they'll decide, you know what, we can fix this up. Yeah. I mean, maybe a BC liberal who wants to sway public opinion in their favor would Could like to champion a, a private, a private members, members bill. bill. Yeah. Todd Stone. <laughs> Todd uh, Stone, are you listening? Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, so there you go. Another cell phone ticket case. Yes. And, um, and that leads me they into never stop. another case, which was reported in the media, a story by Ian Mulgrew, who talked about a decision from Justice Kent in BC Supreme Court, who is, I would say, developing a name for himself at telling exactly what he thinks in his judgments. No, but he's very professional about it. He's not a... No? I don't know. Well, I've had people... I enjoy appearing in front of him. I like the sort of... The back and forth. But you you, you have arguments with him, but you seem to enjoy having the argument with him. You know I like to have somebody who's... Yeah, well, it's better than silence. You know, when you're standing there talking and you get no feedback at all from the judge and you're just wondering what they're thinking. I'd rather they ask you questions. That's the thing that, you know, is always more enjoyable for me. Yes, and he always wants to know more than what the case is just about. So you get to really get into, like, not just the facts of the case, but what's the bigger picture here? And I like a... a, Big picture discussion. Yeah. So that's good. Um, I like him. A lot of lawyers have trouble with him and I understand why it can appear very abrasive sometimes it can appear as though he is already made up his mind although in my experience usually when it appears that way what he's thinking is in fact the exact opposite both Judge Rogers and Judge Moss sitting in North Vancouver used to do the same thing they'd be 
posing questions to you and you're thinking oh oh this is not going my way where is this going and he's like yeah but what about this yeah but what about this uh, oh, yep. okay but then in the end you know okay maybe they agreed with you you, you know they were just arguing other aspects of it as their thought process was going yep working out anyway, which i appreciate I was so like he issued what could really only be characterized as a scathing rebuke of the practices of both parties in an ICBC case. This was supposed to be a very simple uh, summary judgment case. The matter is supposed to be resolved on the basis of, of um, or sorry, a fast track trial rather. It's supposed to be resolved in a short trial. Um, there's supposed to be agreement about lots of documents. Everything's supposed to happen very quickly. And it did not. What was supposed to be three days turned into seven. And at the beginning of the trial, both parties provided trial time estimates where they said, we recognize that our estimated, estimated amount of time for each of these witnesses adds up to more time than we have set aside for this trial. But don't worry, we'll make up the time as things go along. Paul, have you ever been in a trial where you give an estimate for how long a witness will take and it's going to be less than that estimate? It's rare. I mean, it's it. yes, it has happened, but it's rare. There's been lots of times, actually, where the witness just gave their direct examination, and I thought, I don't even want to ask any questions because there's nothing. Oh, sure. They, they do nothing for my client's case at all in any way. And, sure. And do no damage. So th that happens, but it's rare. I mean, the, the problem here is with these ICBC cases is that they, they are always putting it to the mat. Um, every time they are looking at it and saying to themselves, well... Um, we're probably going to end up settling. We're probably going to end up settling. We're probably going to end up settling on the courthouse steps. And so maybe they don't do the preparation that they need. And I will tell you, uh, when I was a young lawyer doing impaired, lots and lots and lots of impaired driving trials, like scheduling three a week back in those days, uh, I used to, um, always make sure that I was prepared because the one time that I thought it's going to be a deal. I'm not going to prepare. This one's just going to be a deal. I'm not going to prepare. I went there and the crown wouldn't deal. And I was just lucky because I was pants around my ankles. I won the thing for something luck. Um, police officer forgetting to testify about something. But really that's what ends up happening in a lot of these cases. You expect that uh, the IC, the lawyers who are, you know, suing on behalf of their clients expect ICBC is going to settle. Mm -hmm. Um, the ICBC lawyer is also thinking, well, I'll probably be able to settle this thing out. And then they show up there and they can't settle it out. And they were like, well, we didn't really even really turn our mind to the issue of how long this is going to take, what we have to do. Half the time they haven't written out any really good examination, you know, you know. Well, and know. they also, like, apparently in this trial, both parties had filed, like, books of documents that were hundreds of pages of things like banking records and medical history going back to the 1920s. And, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but for effect, like, just tons of stuff that was not even referred to at trial. Well, that's the thing, yeah. Well, that happens into all those offices and all these litigation things where they want to cover off everything. They don't want to think about how it's going to be used in the end, and they just want to dump everything on there. Yeah, um, that's... And I think that's probably pretty common practice. Yeah. And that's, I guess, why he was upset about it. But, you know, he was a lawyer once, too. Um, it's the same, you know, we all go through that same situation where we're sort of trying to figure things out to the end and 
were using these, I suppose those ICBC lawyers and the lawyers for the government are dumping those things on each other in the hopes that it's going to assist during their their negotiation process. And then they end up going to court and everybody feels like a bit of an idiot standing in front of the judge because they started arguing a bunch of things that yeah, weren't but if really you're, good. If you're, <laughs> you know, like trying to prove income, all you need is the T4, Right. Well, I know. I mean, things like that, you you would think that they would have had an agreement on, and that would have sped up the trial. Yeah. Like, but I, you know, also, I, I, don't re- know. I think back to my own ICBC case where, you know, they make you fill out a form saying how much money you earn. And then they looked at that, and they were like, well, where's your proof for this? And I'm like, well, this is what I earn. Am I going to lie? T- I'm a- T4 and my corporate tax records. And they're like, oh, well you you bill the corporations where your invoices and I'm like literally there are thousands of pages because I invoice for every file I work on and they made me and they paid for this Paul they made me and by me I mean my assistant because <laughs> I wasn't going to do it photocopy every single invoice on every single file I had billed since I started working at Acumen and I had to photocopy it then I had to redact it to take out the client name to take out the work that we did and all of that and just leave the amount of money that I collected. Because, of course, we couldn't tell them what we were billing for certain types of work or anything like that. Just the amount of money I collected on each invoice. So date, amount oh, of money so I Oh, that's so ridiculous. And there was like 5,000 pages in the end that I had to submit to them that had to be double photocopied so that we could redact the photocopy. And then because you can see through the part that's that's scribbled over with the Sharpie, photocopy it a second time to keep it from being seen through. So 5,000 pages, and they, we, we wrote them and said, this is what it's going to cost. You don't need this. I'm not filing a false tax return to say I make more money than I do because why would I pay more taxes? <laughs> and they still paid for it, 25 cents a page photocopying, plus time. They paid time for the legal assistant to do all that. Oh, that's so ridiculous. This is why... You're a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. Giving, you're a lawyer giving a statement of what you earn. If you were... If you lied to them, you'd be, like, committing a fraud upon the court. You'd be disbarred. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you're not going to put that on there. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, there you go. That's... Yeah, it was it was insane. Anyway, so I can understand how... But, like, can you be imagine being the judge in that trial where they put in their document book all 5,000 pages of my billing slips? Yes, uh, my lord, we expect you to look through each of the 5,000 pages of the billing slips. That's a but good good no, use of taxpayers' money. No wonder he was ticked off. Uh, no wonder. And I just think, you know, like as a, as a defense lawyer, we're encouraged to make reasonable admissions to streamline the trial process, and we do. I make admissions all the time. I always go, like, ah, my policy is no admissions, but in the end, I make tons of admissions because it's a lot easier. Yes, but the one thing that has changed in my lifetime, which is kind of painful, is that you you have to beat the dead horse now. So, I mean, used to be lots of times I'd be running an impaired driving trial. The judge would find something. I would He'd know what I was doing. It was a small little thing. I wouldn't have to go any further. Um, you know, you'd kind of get some sort of, something would indicate to you that they got it during the course of discussion or like the eyebrow raised or something and you think you'd be done and you know you'd say I'm not gonna I'm not gonna continue to dig out every little bit of evidence out of this witness because I've gone far enough 
-hmm. And now we're in the, we've, we've, it's changed in my lifetime. We are in the yeah. beat the dead horse system now, where is you will be, you think you've got it all because any reasonable person would be saying, well, that's like, you've nailed it. And meanwhile, you come back and, you know, the judge is saying that you haven't. Uh, and that's frustrating. That's mm -hmm. frustrating. And I, I, there's no legal change to it. Uh, it's an issue of uh, a difference in the way people are thinking these days and the way judges are thinking these days. So I'm, I'm, makes me sympathetic for the lawyers here. Yeah. I'm defending the lawyers all along. Well, I think when both sides are accused of the same problem that I don't need to step in to defend the lawyers, I think the lawyers need to think, how can we make this easier on the judge while, you know, representing our client to the best of our ability? And you're never... Here's a pro tip for any lawyers listening out there, young lawyers especially. You are never representing your client to the best of their your ability if you're pissing the judge off by doing things that are not necessary. Well, not necessary. The problem is, though, that lots of things that you're doing, the judge might think you're, is not necessary. You may think it's necessary. You may feel it's necessary and appropriate. And you may be th thinking to yourself, I'm putting this in because I'm already thinking about the appeal and I'm just preserving my record. Sure, but so that's when you have, you know, you That's carefully... the dead horse thing. Like you can yep. be beating the dead horse and then the judge can, you think you've beat the horse to death. I hate this as a terrible metaphor, but um, you think you've got everything in a hundred times over and the judge comes back and says, no, you haven't. And you lose and you're sitting there going, okay, well, you know, what else should I have done? Well, I, I think that's when you carefully you find a way to explain to the judge why it's important, whether it's in an opening statement before your voir dire, or if it's a civil trial, the opening statement in the civil trial, like, I'm going to be putting this evidence before your honor or your your lordship, and, and this is why this matters. You're going to hear about this, and you need to know that this matters because of this. And you teach them before they hear about it why it's necessary, so that when it comes around, not only is it abundantly clear to them, but it's also abundantly clear that you're doing something to streamline the trial process by alerting the judge to the issue in advance. I think the only time that, there's lots of times that that might be appropriate, and there's times that you, you would do that. And strategically, there's lots of times you wouldn't want to do that. And um, I think it's a decision you make on a sort of piece of evidence by piece of evidence basis. Sure. In any event. Um, ICBC lawyers also doing it. So it wasn't just the uh, no the claimants' lawyers. It was both parties there had were uh, chastised by the justice for not having their act together. Yep. And incidentally, when trials take four days longer than they say they're going to take and four days longer than are actually needed, um, things like what happened today in BC Supreme Court end up happening, which is when... Uh, Chief Justice Hinkson walks into a courtroom with 11 matters scheduled for trial and says, I do not have a judge for any of you. That happened today. That happened today. Also reported by Ian Mulgrew. Well, that's unfortunate. He's a lovely man. Hinkson? Yep. Great guy. Great guy. I'm sure he gave a very... Sure, he's not very happy about that. No. I, he said, look, so, but, I need which more Which brings judges. you back to these ICBC lawyers and the defense lawyer or the, the ICBC lawyer and the, and the plaintiff's counsel in your ICBC case. How many times do you show up and your trial doesn't get started? Mm -hmm. So you've, you know, the, what's the point of even doing the preparation? You're standing there doing it as you go because you've shown up there five times and it hasn't started. Yep. 
So, I mean, chastising those lawyers in those circumstances where lawyers show up and they're not as prepared as they could be, um, you know, why are you, you going to spend 100 hours on the weekend and two weekends before and week before preparing for a trial that you show up for and there's no judge, you know, and or then you, you have to do it again. It's a 144 in the morning of, like my trials, but I still prepare. Mm. I prepare well, the shit out of all of them. You and I do too, but we That's also what get your to... your job is. Yeah, it's different though because the Crown is is bound by the Jordan decision and they're looking at it and saying, okay, well, now we can't run this trial and we've got to do something. And that's you prepared your trial and, and you were in a better position to be able to negotiate it, which is what I found in the one that I hadn't prepared that time. I showed up, I was like, you know, why should they make a deal here? And I found I just was not nearly as convincing when I hadn't prepared it. And I was, you know, again, I was lucky. Yeah. Um, okay. It's that time. We shortchanged people last week. But this week, we have a ridiculous driver who is being, uh, I guess there's a, there's a hunt for him or her. Uh, the police are looking to identify uh, the driver of a car that was seen near Kamloops and Grand Forks with a snowmobile on the roof. And it was a, it was a Crown Vic and it looks like a former police Crown Vic. It's Definitely a decommissioned police crown bag. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and that's a great thing. Um, so BC RCMP traffic uh, has some questions for the driver of this car seen uh, in the Kamloops and Grand Forks area. First, how do you get it on the roof? Seriously, this is potentially dangerous if the roof can't support the load and securement is questionable. Call if you can identify. So they're trying to identify this vehicle. I'm sorry, there's nothing in this photo that tells you that that is not securely mounted on the roof. And I'm you just and thinking... I, you and I had talked about this. I suggested that perhaps it was an overloaded axles. No, it's a Crown Vic. And you look at the at the way that it's riding, it looks like they might have an air suspension that's been elevated in the back, if anything. It's not sitting low. Mm -hmm. And a Crown Vic can take a lot, a lot, a lot of weight. You know, the snowmobile on the roof doesn't even look like it's doing anything to the roof. What about insecure load? It could be bolted down, it could be screwed down. I built a, um, a roof rack to hold my canoe on my old Volvo 240. I welded it up myself <laughs> and it grabbed onto the, uh, onto the, um, the rails on the, uh, the, the water rain, rain rails on it. Perfectly tight, beautiful, sat low. You couldn't even tell there was a roof rack on the thing. For those who are new to this podcast, you should know that Paul's Volvo is the one that got away. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I love that Volvo. Um, <laughs> and I still dream about it from time to time. And I felt that I betrayed it by having any car after that. But, um, the, but I'm looking at this, and this might be completely securely tied down. And so, you know, why call it into question? Now, it almost looks like the license plate's been blurred out by the police. It's hard to tell. It looks like it could just be a really bad capture. So, I don't know. Now... I, there are some questions like, I am curious how they got it up there. Forklift. Forklift would have done it, but how are you going to get it off at the other end? Another forklift. I mean, an old Crown Vic like this might be... You I could mean, probably ride it off. You could probably end. ride it off. And the other thing is, it's white, uh, just like snow. So maybe it's, you know, just like driving yeah, onto the snow. you can't prove that car's not made out of snow. Exactly. <laughs> it might have been, the car might have been completely covered in snow when they drove it up there. It might have been driven up there by mistake, and then they thought... Hey, this is not well, a bad idea. You know. <laughs> but, 
But I'm looking at it and just thinking to myself that I'm surprised um, in certain parts of the province. I mean, there's parts of the province, uh, British Columbia, if you're listening outside of British Columbia, where really you, you, you pretty much have to have a load of wood in the back of your truck at all times if you want to be cool and maybe a chainsaw there. And maybe this is the new thing, is a snowmobile on the roof of your Crown Vic. Um, and uh, I kind of want to have a Crown Vic just drive with a snowmobile all year round on the roof. Sure, yeah. I mean, I don't see why you shouldn't, other than you're going to get these types of tweets from the RCMP about you. But anyway, Ridiculous Driver of the Week, good on you. Uh, Looks like a Polaris. If you listen... <laughs> to this podcast please tell us send us a direct message on twitter or something and tell us we won't reveal your identity don't worry um how you got the snowmobile up there yeah you can tell us that you can make it privileged and uh you know this is where this is where a lawyer comes in handy you're under investigation you need legal advice but also tell us (laughs) yeah Yeah, i'm curious how he got it up there i just want to know there was i mean years ago there was somebody who was transporting a old jaguar like an xk120 or xk140 on the roof of a volvo and they rolled it how they got it on the roof of a volvo i don't know it was a volvo wagon and they rolled it and destroyed of course the the expensive jag so hmm, not always safe well i just see a lot of problems with that scenario more than this one yes In any event, Paul, that is our time. That's the end of the Driving Law Podcast for this week. Thank you, Kyla. I've enjoyed being a guest on your show. Sometimes (laughs) co-host. If you need to reach us to uh, ask a question about a driving law-related issue, steal legislation that we have drafted for uh, cell phone uh, distracted driving provisions in in a traffic act, or explain how you got your snowmobile on the top of your car, you can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com or give us a call 604-685-8889 and tune in next week and we'll be back with another episode of the Driving Law Podcast.